Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulce, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court, in a 7-0 decision, ruled in favor of the California Insurance Commissioner against a major insurance industry legal challenge to his regulatory authority. The case involves regulations pertaining to homeowner insurance policies, but will have application to his regulatory authority in all areas of insurance, including workers' compensation policies. The back story to this case involves wildfires, which are a fact of life in California. After the 1991 Oakland Hills Fire and 2003 Southern California wildfires, legislators discovered that homeowners' coverage fell well short of what they needed, sometimes by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Guaranteed replacement coverage was the norm as recently as the 1990s, but only a limited number of homeowners qualified for such a product, and only a small subset of insurers even offered it. The legislature took several steps to address the divergence between the homeowner's expectations and the actual scope of coverage, and the California Insurance Commissioner adopted implementation regulations, which became effective in 2011. But the insurance industry, led by the Association of California Insurance Companies and the Personal Insurance Federation of California, filed its lawsuit challenging the commissioner's authority to adopt these regulations. The trial court invalidated the regulations on the ground that the commissioner exceeded his authority, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court decision. But the California Supreme Court reversed in the case of the Association of California Insurance Companies versus Dave Jones as Commissioner of the California Department of Insurance. The California Supreme Court ruled that the insurance commissioner has broad discretion to adopt rules and regulations as necessary to promote the public welfare. It pointed out that in 1959, the legislature enacted the Unfair Insurance Practices Act to regulate trade practices in the business of insurance. Empowered by authority granted in this act, the commissioner may investigate those engaged in the business of insurance. And the act also grants the commissioner rulemaking power as necessary. The Supreme Court noted that what authority the legislature conferred here appears to be quite broad. In this instance, the commissioner undertook an investigation into the widespread problem of underinsurance, and in particular, the disconnect between a homeowner's expectation and the actual scope of insurance coverage purchased. Based on that investigation, he determined that an incomplete replacement cost estimate that fails to account for all of the costs necessary to rebuild the structure qualifies as a specific kind of misleading statement, and that regulations of misleading statements is authorized by the broad statutory prohibition against false and misleading statements in the Unfair Insurance Practices Act. And the WCAB issued an en banc decision clarifying what information may be sent unilaterally by a party to an agreed medical examiner. Here's what happened in the case of Maxim versus California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation Service. The parties in that case agreed to utilize Drs. Abelic, 
Johnson, and Lappins as AMEs. Applicants' counsel provided defendants with draft copies of letters to the three AMEs asking if the defendants had an objection to them. The defendants objected to all three letters and asked applicants' counsel to redraft them and send the letters back for review. But applicants' counsel went ahead and sent these letters to the AMEs over the defense objections. A hearing was then set to resolve issues related to applicant submission of the advocacy letters. The issue to be decided was whether applicants' counsel's letters are other information as contemplated by Labor Code Sections 406.2.3 and QME Regulation 35. The work comp judge found that Labor Code Section 462.3F applied, and when communications, including advocacy letters, are sent to an AME, they need only be served on the opposing party. The defendant filed a petition for removal, which was granted by the WCAB, and the case was returned to the trial level for further development of the record after clarifying the law on this issue. It is important to understand the distinction between a letter that contains, quote, information, end quote, and a letter that contains just a, quote, communication, end quote. The Labor Code Section 4062.3c requires the party's agreement before any information is provided to an AME. In contrast, Labor Code 4062.3f says that when a party wishes to send communication to an AME, it is necessary only to serve the opposing party with that communication. Because of the tension between these provisions, it is important to delineate when documents and other materials provided to an AME constitute information rather than communication. The Labor Code defines information as records prepared or maintained by the employer's treating physician or physicians or medical and non-medical records relevant to the determination of the medical issues. At first blush, applicants' advocacy letters to the AMEs should constitute communication because they do not fall into one of the two categories of records that characterize information. However, a given piece of correspondence or a letter to a party under certain circumstances may be more than simply an act of communication. It may also contain information. For example, Cases have held that subrows of video provided to a QME constituted information because its enclosure with a communication will not transform it into a communication. But advocacy letters discussing legal positions or decisions would not constitute information as defined by the Labor Code. Correspondence engaging in advocacy or asserting a legal or factual position can, however, cross the line into information if it has the effect of disclosing impermissible information to the AME without explicitly containing referencing or enclosing it. Misrepresentation of case law or legal holdings engaging in sophistry regarding factual or legal issues or misrepresentation of actual information in a case are three ways in which a party might attempt to convey purported 
information to a medical examiner to which the opposing party has not agreed. The workers' compensation judge retains wide discretion in assessing the contents of a party's advocacy letters to ensure parties do not serve correspondence which could confuse or misdirect the attention of a medical examiner, even if that communication does not expressly contain reference or enclose information. A federal judge temporarily blocked the proposed $37 billion mega merger between health insurance industry giants Aetna and Humana, ruling that the transaction would reduce competition for consumers. The ruling marks a significant setback for the companies who announced the proposed deal last July. Humana could get a $1 billion breakup fee from Aetna if the deal ultimately falls through. The government alleged that this merger of Aetna and Humana would likely substantially lessen competition in markets for individual Medicare Advantage plans and health insurance sold to the public exchanges. The companies contended the deal would not lessen competition. They also said their complementary strengths in technology and relationships with health care providers would benefit consumers. But after a 13-day trial, the U.S. District Court judge mostly agreed with the government in his 156-page ruling. The judge based the ruling evidence of the overwhelming market concentration figures the merger would generate, plus findings of head-to-head competition between Aetna and Humana that would be eliminated if the deal were finalized. The decision represents legal vindication for the Justice Department, which was joined by eight states and the District of Columbia in opposing Aetna's proposed takeover of Humana. The judge also ruled that neither new health insurance competitors nor business divestitures the companies proposed to address antitrust concerns would replace competition eliminated by the merger. An Aetna spokesman said the company was reviewing the opinion and giving serious consideration to an appeal. And in regulatory news, a top U.S. lawmaker accused the Food and Drug Administration of failing to hand over documents that would show whether its criminal office is fulfilling the critical mission of protecting public health. The Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Greg Walden Comments come about four months after the Congressional panel launched an examination into the FDA criminal office and how it was managing cases involving food, drugs, and devices. Their review came after Reuters reported that FDA agents complained that managers, including the former OCI director George Caravetsos, were forcing them to pursue often toothless cases involving mislabeled foreign imported injectable drugs at the expense of cases with more potential to protect the public health. These agents said they had become the Botox police and were spending hours chasing down doctors who purchased authentic versions of allergen, popular anti-wrinkle drug, that were labeled for use in other countries. Those concerns came at a time when the office was seeing more than half its open cases ultimately get closed without any action. The FDA did not meet the committee's October deadline to provide written answers 
to questions until January 19. In its letter, the FDA listed its investigative priorities and said that traditional metrics used to gauge success, such as arrests and convictions, cannot capture the impact of its public health mission. It also provided annual data on arrests, convictions, and the number of open cases. However, it admitted preliminary stage investigative numbers from the total number of cases opened each year, which makes the conviction rate appear higher. Walden said the FDA did not provide performance plans, among other things. He also complained of redactions on a separate record, which, according to a committee aide, contained salary and compensation information for Karatsvetsos. The DWC has posted an order adjusting the physician services and non-physician practitioner services section of the OMFS to conform to relevant 2017 changes in the Medicare payment system. The practitioner fee schedule is now based on the Federal Resource-Based Relative Value Scale, or RBRVS, which was adopted as a result of SB 863, effective for services rendered after 2014. The physician fee schedule uses the Medicare 2014 relative value units and 2014 CPT codes. Relative value units for each medical service measure the relative resources associated with the physician's work, the time and skill required for the procedure, and the practice expense, meaning the staff time and costs of maintaining an office, plus malpractice expenses. The RV uh, as the RVS compare the resources required for one service to those required for other services. The RVRVS tends to provide lower relative values for surgical and other technical procedures and higher relative values for evaluation and management services. A conversion factor is a dollar amount that is used in a formula to convert the RVU uh, unit system into a payment amount for a service. The conversion factor determines the overall fee schedule payment level. The fee schedule starts with separate conversion factors for surgery, radiology, and all other services in 2014 and transitions to a single conversion factor beginning in 2017 for all services except anesthesia. Anesthesia is priced under a different scale using base units and time units and will continue to have a separate conversion factor. Then, a geographic adjustment factor adjusts for geographic differences in the costs of maintaining a physician's practice. Medicare uses adjustment factors for nine geographic areas or localities in California. But for California workers' compensation, the regulations adopt one statewide average uh, global area. More details about the order can be found on the OMFS page on the DWC's website. NBC Bay Area has been highly critical of the California Workers' Compensation Medical Delivery System in a string of articles published last year. The critical articles claim that many injured workers and their doctors say the California Workers' Compensation System is dragging out their medical care. 
The investigative report was essentially based upon anecdotal accounts of perhaps a dozen cases that it says leads to its conclusion. But now the DWC's director has responded to this criticism. Christine Baker defended the system, saying reforms made four years ago improved access to medical treatment and helped contain costs. She also credits a new law enacted in January for further strengthening the system. The major changes launched in 2013 under SB 863 emphasized evidence-based medicine and shifted treatment decisions from the courts to medical reviewers using state-approved guidelines to authorize or deny treatment requests. According to Baker, the changes are paying off. She says treatment has been sped up and appropriate treatment is being approved and it is overall an improvement to the workers' compensation system, which is very complex. According to recent estimates, the reforms also cut costs to the nation's most expensive workers' comp system by more than a billion dollars per year. NBC Bay Area responded to her assertion with more anecdotal accounts saying, Many doctors and attorneys who represent injured workers say denials have reached all-time highs. They believe the guidelines touted by state administrators are too rigid and do not always keep up with modern treatment techniques. But Christine Baker rejected these claims. She said that 95% of medical care decisions are approved. There are a few that do not get approved, and it could be that it is inappropriate care or the doctor did not document the requirements for care. And NBC refutes Baker's claim, saying that the data cited by Baker is impossible to verify. NBC complains that the studies are published by the California Workers' Compensation Institute, which in turn relies on data voluntarily provided by its members, insurance companies, which is not made available for public inspection. But Baker reiterated the majority of the 250,000 workers who go through the system each year get satisfactory results. Baker said the state is also coordinating an outreach effort to help doctors understand how to properly document a request for a specific course of treatment, which she expects to further reduce denials. The DIR and the Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation announced the reappointment of Angie Way to the commission, where she has served since 2005 as a labor representative. A total of eight commissioners are appointed by the governor and the legislature. Labor Code 75 establishes that two of the employer members and two of the labor members on the commission shall be appointed by the governor. The Senate Committee on Rules and the Speaker of the Assembly shall each appoint one employer and one labor representative, which is the remaining four members. Angie Wee is the Chief of Staff of the California Labor Federation, the state AFL-CIO. The state federation represents 1,200 affiliated unions and over 2 million workers covered by collective bargaining agreements. Previously, Way was a program associate for Policy Line of Oakland, California, and advocated for the California Immigrant Welfare Collaborative, which is a coalition of four immigrant rights organizations. Ms. Wee holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science and Asian American Studies from the University of California, Berkeley, 
and a Master of Arts degree in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And in medical news, a study published in the Occupational and Environmental Medicine Journal says that nearly a third of middle-aged workers suffer from some level of frailty, including fatigue issues with walking and other physical limitations that make them less able to hold a job. Although frailty is more often considered when treating elderly patients, middle-aged patients may face some of the same symptoms. The research team claims that physical frailty leaves many people out of work entirely, while others take a lot of days off or struggle with physical demands, especially in manual labor jobs. Researchers recruited more than 8,000 people in their 50s and early 60s from 24 English general practices to compile data for the study. Overall, the researchers classified 4% of participants as frail, while nearly a third of participants were considered pre-frail because they reported one or two of the four frailty symptoms. Frailty was tied to a large impact on employment, with three-quarters of frail people not working at all, and 60% had left their last job on health grounds. Compared with non-frail people, frail people were 30 times more likely to lose their job. Frail people were nearly 11 times more likely to have been out of work on prolonged sick leave in the past year compared with healthy workers. Frail workers were also over 17 times more likely to report needing to cut down a lot on work in the past year compared with non-frail workers. Workers considered to be frail were nearly 15 times more likely to have difficulty coping with physical demands at work and to be unsure if they would be able to continue work in two years. The pre-frail workers were also at higher risk of bad outcomes compared to healthy counterparts, but their risk was not as extreme as that of frail people. Frailty had the biggest impact on blue-collar manual workers rather than office workers, although the office workers still saw a significant effect. Despite this, frailty is preventable and can be reversed, and it may be delayed or forestalled by regular exercise and a nutritious diet. The largest lobbying organization for pharmaceutical companies began running television ads this year to improve the industry's image as criticism from U.S. President Donald Trump increases. Pharmaceutical companies may be facing their most difficult time ahead as criticism about the price of drug continues to increase. In a news conference this month, President Trump said drug manufacturers were getting away with murder because of their pricing. Thus, the pharmaceutical industry reports it will spend tens of millions of dollars on these television commercials. Pharma CEO cast the Gold Boldly campaign as an effort to refocus the discussion about the strides in research. The campaign will include national TV, print, digital, radio, and out-of-home advertising. A new website, GoBoldly.com will provide visitors with more information about the topics and themes featured in campaign advertisements. And a redesigned Innovation.org website 
We'll provide in-depth information about advances in biopharmaceutical innovation. Planning for the group's campaign began six months ago, well before the November presidential election. The group also released a four-part regulatory and legislative agenda that it said would be part of an extensive lobbying campaign, including advocating for changes to the Food and Drug Administration and the ability for drug makers to coordinate with insurance companies when developing new treatments. As deaths from powerful painkillers continue to rise, Canada is pursuing unprecedented measures to curb their use, including requiring cigarette-style warning stickers on every prescription. Next month, Health Canada plans to publish a detailed proposal for the stickers, which would warn that opioid painkillers can cause addiction and overdose. In March, an advisory panel is set to consider a second measure revising the official label definition of how opioids should and should not be used. The measures would follow other strategies that fail to stem addiction and death involving prescription opioids. Fatal overdoses have increased across Canada, mirroring the much larger epidemic in the United States. Some doctors and public health experts who have long clamored for safeguards said the new measures may be too little too late. In an effort to address Canada's drug problem, health officials made it more difficult to obtain OxyContin after Purdue introduced a tamper-resistant formulation of the drug in 2012. But physicians and addicts switched to different drugs and illegal fentanyl, which flooded Canada's streets. And doctors began prescribing more hydromorph content, which has eclipsed oxycodone and fentanyl as the most commonly prescribed opioid in Ontario, B.C., Alberta, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. Canada, Canada, Canadian and U.S. public health advocates have campaigned unsuccessfully to restrict the long-term use of any opioid for non-cancer pain. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released non-binding guidelines last year cautioning against the use of long-acting opioids as first-line treatment for chronic pain and urging low initial doses and discontinuation as soon as possible. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.